All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Duckman TV. Got special guests on today, one of the commentating aficionados of Sydney rugby, Tony Lewis. So if you've followed Sydney rugby for a while, it's transitioned from being with Channel 2, went to 7 and all this, and John Fordham bought in and had bits and pieces of it. And this guy worked with John Fordham, Nick McArdle, and all these guys in their commentary team and has been around as part of the furniture of the setup of uh, the commentary team and uh, very well respected within the Sydney rugby scene. It is a great honour to have you on tonight and pick your brain on all things rugby, Tony. Oh, good on you, Matt. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit flabbergasted by your very kind words, mate. It's very kind of you. I, I don't know if I'm well respected, but, you know, we'll we'll, uh, we'll have a chat. <laughs> yeah. So how did your experience, how did you get involved in rugby to start off with? Where did your experience start and What's the picture look like to take you where you are today? I've always loved the game, mate. You know, I mean, I started, you know, like most young blokes in New South Wales. Um, you know, I started playing at about the age of six or seven, you know, running around. And uh, uh, I, I just loved it. I, I just I always loved it. You know, I was not a good player. But as Bob Dwyer said, I was an honest player, you know. Yeah. And uh, um uh, enjoyed myself a lot and I've always been very, very, very passionate supporter, um, you know, of the game and, and of Australian rugby in, in particular, you know, and particularly uh, the Wallabies. And, uh, you know, after I left um, high school, I played for, um, um, you know, a few games for colleagues and for East and then I headed overseas and ended up in the United States where I lived for um, 10 years and uh, was playing over there and ended up coaching uh, um, a team in the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, over there, which was uh, you know a lot of fun. We did a lot of travelling around the Western United States. The Americans are big on tournaments, as you probably yep. know, um, and there's some great tournaments in the Western United States. The Aspen Rugger Fest is uh, it's massive, you know, and the quality of play play there is is usually quite high. Yeah, uh, um, and you know, in you know New Mexico and Colorado, tournaments all over the place. California, fantastic. Yeah. So one thing I noticed with America, so I I love wrestling. I follow the wrestling religiously, and there's a lot of guys in WWE wrestling that like got Daniel Vito that's come from the NRL here, played Broncos and that stuff, is now making waves in um, WWE. He's on his way up, so he's not up near the top, but he's heading in the right direction. And you've got guys like uh, Joe Anoe, or better known as Roman Reigns in it. He was uh, effectively a a very, very good college footballer. Uh, couldn't quite crack the big leagues for the NFL, which not everyone can. Even if you do make it, there's a lot of guys that make it a bit, but not like ingrained in it for 10 or 15 years. Now he's a WWE wrestler. He's got Polynesian background and related to Dwayne Johnson. Is that whole market, so there's a huge Polynesian back, like, backlog of good athletes that are getting to 22, 23, can't get to the NFL. Why aren't they playing rugby? What, what's stopping that from happening? Could it happen? Well, the, the the American sports market is a little unusual in that the sports that attract the big money, the big TV money, uh, uh, and the enormous fa fan base are the American sports, the ones that have been invented by America. Baseball, basketball, American football, which was... Uh, uh, formulated from rugby union, of yep. course. You know the the line of scrimmage was 
their version of the scrum. You know, that's what they did with the scrum. But uh, um, and a, a game like our game, rugby union, which was sort of developed in England and played by the Commonwealth countries, um, you know, has never really gained that much traction in the United States. Having said that, it's always been popular amongst the the people, the fraternity, and the sorority uh, of players that actually play the game. You know, and uh, it's easy to find out the. The, the the people, the very famous people that played rugby when they were in college, you know, Bill Clinton was one of them. All the oh, Kennedy, really? yeah, all the Kennedys played rugby when they were at, when they were at college. Um, you know, Matt Damon was uh, a pretty good player, I hear, and uh, so. And as you say, there's a lot of Polynesians now living in the United States, and um, you know, the whole thing about being a good college athlete is that you, you know you may get a lot of attention as a college athlete, but it's not guaranteed that you're going to go to the pros, you know, and it's really only in the States. It is the best of the best, you know, yeah. that get to get to the professional ranks. I'm talking about the NFL and the major league baseball and uh, basketball and, and so on. So as you say, there are a lot of, you know, pretty good athletes that are kind of left behind, you know, and, uh, one thing that causes the, these guys that I'm talking about, you know, to come in and play rugby is that they love being uh, uh, involved in an organised sport. You know, there's the fraternity of the team and then there's, uh, you know, travelling and so on. And uh, if you just teach them the game, they're always very, very willing. Yeah. As we said just before we kicked off, we're talking about Major League Rugby, so I wanted to chat to you about that as well. Um, that has effectively drained a lot of quality players out of the shoot shield into that competition to help make it stronger, build its foundations, and it's headed in the right direction. I think it's a 10-year to 20-year work and project, but if the people are running the game in America are dedicated to it and stick with it, I think they're going to see big rewards because you've got this backlog of guys at the right age coming in that have probably come from a rugby background, don't make it in the NFL. Surely some of these guys are going to start transitioning across to rugby and they're going to start to see rewards out of this because they're going to be able to go to things like the Olympics for sevens, uh, compete in world tournaments and be competitive. And that's got to be a big appeal. Definitely. And, and uh, you know, as we were saying before we before we kicked the podcast off, they've, uh, the United States has improved out of sight uh, in sevens rugby um, because it is now an Olympic sport. And uh, the Americans will definitely throw money at something in the chance of winning a gold medal at the Olympics. So, and we've seen the, the, the improvement in the U S Eagles, uh, on the, on the world seven circuit over the last, I don't know, half dozen to, you know, 10 years or so, um, yeah. really, really outstanding and, uh, getting to the point, you know, where they're beating the all blacks and they're winning tournaments. Uh, uh, it really is a, really is a change. And I think that if they can, uh, just get themselves organized enough, um, at the international level, they do really well. Having said that, I'm I'm surprised that they were sort of beaten in their uh, playoff situation to to go to the World Cup. They, you know, they played against Uruguay and Chile and uh, uh, you know South Brazil, South American countries, and uh, I'm surprised that they weren't more successful against those countries. To be honest with you, but um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, see, I would say Chile's been a bit of a surprise packet of the World Cup, but because even against Japan, they lost against Japan, the score ended up blowing out a bit. But until 15 minutes from the end, 
they were only down by 12 points. They were in the game. They had a genuine, serious opportunity and chance to win as lack of experience and the fact that the the um, Cherry Blossoms are a very, very good team and been around the World Cup for a lot. So with experienced coaches, they were able to just consolidate their position and finish the game off. So take the chances when they presented and get results with it. So And that Chile didn't have that sort of finesse to finish off the game. That's right. And, I, uh, you know, I've, I've been very impressed with them, just like I was in 2019 when Uruguay knocked off um, Fiji in yep. the uh, in, in in that World Cup, you know that was uh, an amazing win for the for the Uruguayans. But uh, it's great to see these so-called minnow countries, you know, representing on the world stage. And uh, it's only it's only it can only be good for the game, I think. But yep. you, you opened that you opened that uh, uh, conversation, Matty, by uh, talking about Aussies going to play in the United States, and I think this is a reality that we in Australian rugby are going to have to accept and deal with in the coming years in that our most elite players are going to go where the big money is. Yeah. And it's, it's the time has, has, has long gone, I think, where we can rely on people's respect and love for the jersey and go, well, if you don't want to play in Australia, then you're not going to get picked for the Wallabies. And I think we've got to can the Giddo rule and just make it open slather. You know what I mean? Like, if yeah. the best players, you know, go and play, uh, you know, in, in Europe or Japan or America or where the money is, that's fine. Let them play wherever the hell they want, but let's get them back for the test matches. Um, I mean, they don't, only need, they don't only need two or three weeks in camp, surely, you know, yeah, um, to get things together. But I think we're going to have to do that, mate, you know? Yeah, yeah I 100% agree. So I think that you need to pick the best players, if they're available, you need to pick the best players available for your nation, whoever they are, wherever they're based at any time. So yes. uh, I don't necessarily disagree with Eddie Jones doing the rebuild that he's doing, but Australian rugby, we put our own barriers in the way of making things successful. So by having the Gitter rule and all these different things, so you can only play for Australia if you're overseas, if you played 60 tests beforehand and you're a veteran. So it wipes all the young guys out altogether. Surely, yeah. surely that rule is like archaic effectively now and like out of out of touch with the reality of what the best wallaby side could be. Look, you know, I'm I'm no great fan of, of, of South African rugby. I mean, I respect them a lot, but this is what they've done. You know, they've just gone, you know what, this is what we have to do. And they've, they've let their players go and play wherever they want and then they get them together for the internationals. And they're doing quite well, you know. I mean, they're not doing badly at all. Yeah, the, the spring box. So yeah. you know, maybe maybe that's something we 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 could look at. You know, I mean, there's so many you know ideas that people have sort of going forward for the game. That's but there's there really does need to be you know change on a root and branch you know level. And uh, yeah. I think there's got to be some brutal decisions made. And my only concern is that the review process and the decisions made. Uh, are going to be made by the people that got us into this mess in the first place. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I hope not. Well, when I've interviewed Dave Moffat a couple of times, he told me he believes that the some of the rules that come around, we're doing the whole Sanzar body, so Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, at the time come up for a participation agreement with a rule that fit one shoe fits all, right? So everybody played by the same rule. So you got players overseas, 
can't pick them. And that was all good until South Africa left and started being involved in Northern, Northern Hemisphere rugby. And they've gone, well, your rules suck anyway, so we're going to just do what's best for South African rugby. And they are, and they're seeing the rewards of that. New Zealand have enough depth to be able to probably play that still and do it. Australian rugby, I think we've been greatly diminished the last couple of years by COVID getting play- players want to go overseas and play now. So get tier two guys like uh, fringe super rugby players or guys that could possibly be considered for international rugby, they're not available anymore because they've gone off on a sojourn to Japan, France, Romania, wherever, playing professional rugby, earning some good money and living a pretty good lifestyle. And and why shouldn't they? I mean, that should be you know available to them. I mean, that's the they've got a skill that's going to earn them big money on the world market. Hey, you know, have at it, boys. You know, but I mean, let's be realistic about it and say, no matter where you are in the world, no matter where you're playing, you are eligible to be picked for the Wallabies. You know, and yeah. uh, yeah. you know, then try and get them back here. You know, in time enough to um, you know help us in the Test matches. I mean, it's been great to have Skelton. Uh, involved. It's such a damn shame that he got injured in the first game. We haven't seen that much of him. But I thought one of the few good things that Eddie Jones did was to give him the captaincy because I think he's a I think he's a good captain. I think he's a good leader. You know, he impressed yeah. me in the the only game I saw him playing, which was well, I saw the warm up against France, but then the Georgian game and stuff like that. I I just think Big Willie's uh you know, he's one of the guys that we're talking about. You know, he should be, you know, one of the first picked no matter where he's playing for mine. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's good. He's good enough. Why wouldn't you consider him? He's he's our biggest lock that we got, and um, he's an enforcer. It's going to get the job done. Well, that's right. And I mean, the, one of the frustrating things is that these blokes that leave Australia and go and play overseas, when they leave Australia, we're kind of like no great loss. They weren't that good anyway. And then a year or two later, we hear they're like tearing it up in the Heineken Cup or or whatever, and they've like yeah. really really improved their game. And I just makes me wonder, you know, is it you know, is our programs here, are they so poor? But I think they must be, man, because look at where we are today, you know? And and the whole thing is that we haven't got the quality players to compete at the top level. I mean, you compare this current Wallaby side with the Wallaby side of, you know, 25 years ago, the, you know, the Eels world champions side, George Gregan, Matty Burke, Joe Roth, Ben Shoon, Eels, Dick Harry, they all had... Uh, rugby DNA, rugby now, rugby smarts enough, um, you know, to be able to sort of not make the stupid mistakes on field that we see these days. I mean, it looks to me like Eddie Jones has coached all the confidence out of these players, mate. I mean, some of the mistakes they were making against Wales were just schoolboy errors. Fundamental. And they just look really nervous, you know. And this yeah. is what happened last time we had Jones coaching the national setup. You know, he inherited a champion team from uh, from Rod McQueen, and uh, within a couple of years, he had every single player pissed off at him. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he's a he's a micromanager. You know, yeah. he's all over everything, mate. You know, and you've got to do it his way, or it's the highway for yeah. you. And I mean, it's not. Uh, I don't think it. I don't think it really works, and I don't think it's going to work now because I think that. He's, he's lost the players already, seems like to me, you know. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, I think so. The question is, if he doesn't do it, who moves into that role now? Who's, who's well, the next choice? Well, exactly. So, exactly. Yes. You, you know, we've got to have, we've got to try and get people like Nusa Fora back. 
um, yep. to get involved. People like Scott Wisemantle, um, um, Tony, uh, is it Tony Johnson? Yeah. Um, it's, it's Simon Simon Cron's too. I think he's still developing as a coach. I think it'd be too big a task to put him in to any sort of real high level. I think so. All of his at the moment. So yeah, I think so. Let let Cronny, you know, get the force firing. You know, which yeah. he he will. I think he's got some good players coming over, and uh, yeah, he's a he's a hell of a good coach, Cronny. Yeah, and uh, see how he does over there. And I mean, DC with the Waratahs as well. You know. Yeah, we're just we're just going to see what happens there, but uh, hopefully he's got, you know, some second rowers and some tight five yeah. members. See, one one thing I think's odd is in Australia, right? We have this expectation we're going to have a top four in the world side, but it, let's look at the top eight sides in the world. So take us out of the picture: England, professional cup competition, Heineken Cup, right? South Africa, Curry Cup, professional competition, other players playing in Europe. New Zealand, professional cup competition, MPC, and Super Rugby players playing overseas as well. So, like Japan, they got their competition. France, top fourteen. Got I can keep naming them. They were professional competitions. The Shoot Shield is an amateur competition. So, why do we think we're going to get international professional standards with guys that are going to match it with people week in, week out when the best competition we've got below Super Rugby, and there's not many people in that, and there's probably too many in it already, according to a couple of people I've spoken to, and it can't disagree because Australia's not firing an up-the-top couple all the time. Um, our best professional competition is a part-time professional competition, which is Super Rugby, and the level below is amateur football. I know. I know, and they've 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 tried to address that, haven't they, a few times with the uh, um, the um, the NR, NPC, NRC, yeah. Yeah. NRC, yeah, NRC, yeah, NRC, and then you know, in various iterations over the years, and uh, um, but it always seems to like fall over, and I'm not sure why that is. It, I, it must just be a lack of money, I think, you know, yeah. because they're not cheap to run those things, and also when you you know, when you look at, uh, well, France, for example, I mean, all of their clubs are privately owned, you yeah. know. Oh, there you go. So that's a different model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that and that makes a difference if you've got, you know, billionaires who love the game sort of, you know, yeah. throwing money around. But uh, I don't know. I don't think I don't think that would happen here because we haven't got that many billionaires or even millionaires willing to throw their money, you know, at, at rugby. I mean, Andrew Forrest... Perhaps, yeah. You know, but then, how much control do we give him? You know, if he kicks in a hundred million dollars, what? You know, how much control do we give him? You know? I, I can tell you now. If you tipped in a hundred million at the moment, I, I think that covers the TV rights deal for about five years, doesn't it? You'd, <laughs> you'd have a fair level of ownership of what's happening in rugby in Australia. Well, my word, you know. But I mean, if he says, "Okay, I'll give you a hundred million dollars," but I want to be chairman of uh, Rugby Australia, do we just go, "Yeah, okay, Twiggy, no worries, mate." Off you go. I mean, is that you know, or is that a dangerous sort of precedent to to make? Because, but I, I think McLennan's got to go, don't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. he's um, promised a lot of stuff and hasn't not getting the runs on the board at the moment and upsetting a lot of people. So, um, if I would have thought so, when you've got a board underneath you in a role like he's got, I, I got totally signed Eddie Jones on the spot. So. 
over a lunch or something like that. I would have thought that you'd be running that stuff past the board before you make appointments. And it didn't just make an appointment out to get rid of a coach too. So how much are we still paying for Dave Rennie at the moment? Well, he overruled the board, Hamish McLennan, yeah. to, 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 to hire Eddie. And I'm thinking to myself, why does this guy have so much unilateral power that he can overrule the board on such a critical question sort of as this? Because I think he kind of like is a bit of a, a hero worshipper of Eddie and thinks he's like the best coach in the world or whatever. But as soon as they said he's coming back, like Rennie's getting fired, and Jones is coming back, I was like, oh, mate, this is just, it's so typical of Australian rugby, you know? It's like the yeah. sort of, the cat-handed decision that Australian rugby makes, like, all the time, you know? But in this yeah. case, it was made by one guy, you know, on his own kind of feelings. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, now, the other funny thing we're starting to hear is, go, I'll replace uh, Eddie Jones with uh, Robbie Deans, like, are we trying to go back to the future all the time? We're going to keep going back to Robbie Deans was. I think Robbie Deans did a good job when he was here, and we got rid of him too early. But um, it's doing the same thing again. Like we're not learning from our mistakes. We keep doing the same thing. Oh, really? I mean, you know what was in the press today? Angus Crichton's been offered one point six mil a year to come and play Union. Just, I mean, it's. You know, it's, it's sort of cloth-headed decisions like this that just make me shake my head. Like, I mean, what is what is McLennan trying to do, you know, releasing this news? Is he trying to sort of create a distraction from the World Cup or, you know, what the hell's going on? But it just seems like such a ridiculous decision to to release right now with the way things are that what we, you know, we recruited another another league player. I mean, I know Angus Crichton is a good rugby player, Aussie schoolboy and played at Scots and all the rest of it, but... You know, again, that's money that they don't have. And it's money that can be better spent in other places, I think. Yeah. You know. I look at Selassie uh, Vunavalu as well. When when we signed him, I don't know how much Rugby Australia paid for his contract. But the fact that it was getting dropped around, it's getting 900 a year. Well, who's paying? How much are Queensland Reds paying? How much is Rugby Australia paying? He's not. Is he worth 450? Uh, I don't know. How, I don't how do you know that? Like how many how many young players could we keep in the game that are yeah. emerging talent yeah. with nine hundred thousand? Surely, surely, be I keep four or five of them. Yeah, well, what? See, in my opinion, the, the game has been mismanaged since it went professional in this country in nineteen ninety five. You know, and um, John O'Neill instigated a policy of taking care of the top of the pyramid over everything else because this is how we make our money, through the Wallabies, through the Lions tours, through Super Rugby, you know, so we need to have the most elite players playing at that. And the money for the so-called grassroots just dried up. I mean, I can I can tell you for a fact that, um, you know, the clubs were getting, you know, in the six figures from the yeah. ARU, you know, when Bill Pulver was... Uh, was there, and uh, you know, we went from like half a million next year, two hundred thousand, next year, fifty thousand, next year, nothing. You know, yeah. So clubs have just been so squeezed financially. You know, yeah. Um, but I think that uh, you know, we got to bite the bullet. We have to concentrate on the bottom of the pyramid. 
you know, we do, we do, I think, have to go through some pain and some losses, and we do need to fall down the rankings a bit. I do agree with Eddie Jones on that. I don't think Eddie Jones is the guy that's going to turn Australian rugby around and get it headed in the right direction. If I thought that he was the guy, I'd be behind him 100%, but I just don't think he's the guy. I don't think he can, you know, get the players on board as much as they need to be on board. Because what we need is, well, first of all, we need a national coaching strategy for a start. You know, yeah. I mean, when Dick Marks was, was, was running the coaching for Australian rugby, you know, everything was humming along pretty well, you know. We need to have a certain style of rugby that we coach from the the Beecroft under nines up to the Wallabies, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that needs to happen, I think. And, uh, you know, so many other things. But the this, this ship needs to be turned around and set heading in the right direction. And if we have a coach that can do that, that's great. I just don't think Eddie Jones is the guy. Yeah. Well, this is strangely enough, this is what they do in football, right? So we talked about before with overseas players being over in Europe playing and that. Our Australian soccer team, the Socceroos, they have a squad that play based out of Australian based players and Asian based players for tournaments that are in or around this level, mini games or things that aren't all that sharp and don't matter all that much. They've got another team based in Europe, but they'll pick out a European based players and stuff like that, that will participate in friendly games over there and that. Then they pick the best of the best when we've got Asian Cup tournaments, World Cup tournaments. Surely the Wallabies can be replicating that model somewhat. And in regards, like you're talking about the competition, football, like Football Australia, developed a football philosophy, what they want everyone to play. And it's not the best in the world, but it's become an Australian-adopted practice across the board that they coach the coaches the same way so the right. coaches will get the same outcomes so if I coach Rose Crossing Premier League which I did in the past so that will get a different outcome if I coach low level under six of soccer somewhere they get the outcome if you coach them with Ange Postacoglu and Socceroos and Graham Arnold they coach the same so they've got obviously more extensive experience on it but you coach them within that framework that will take you potentially to that pathway Surely rugby's got to look at that, something like that. So, because at the moment everyone just does their own thing, then that's why people are all over the place. That no one knows what they want to do. So, mate, it's such a bullshit political scene, Australian rugby. I'll tell you, there are there are people that that just want to get jobs or positions in the hierarchy of Australian rugby, just so they can, you know, boast to their mates that that they're doing it. You know, and. Uh, Everyone jealously guards their own little sphere of influence or their own little fiefdom or whatever. As you say, nobody's working together, you know. Um, You know, nobody's getting together, sitting down, brainstorming, coming up with the best ideas. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of backstabbing. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, throwing people under the bus. It's just not a good scene, mate, you know. Yeah. Now, you're from the eastern suburbs area, live in around Bondi Rose Bay. Um, been tied in with East Rugby Club for a long time, as just said before. Um, John Murray was a pretty strong advocate about different things in uh, competition. I've seen him release an article the other day where he thinks that Super Rugby is perhaps on its way out. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think maybe not completely on its way out, but I need to remodel what it is. 
I don't think it's viable for Australian rugby to have five full-time professional teams now. I don't think the talent's there to do it. I agree. All the money. <laughs> I agree. I agree on in in both cases, and I think it's uh, very bloody sad for the the people of Perth and the people of Melbourne, the rugby tragics in those two places. But uh, it's just five teams is just not working. You know, it's it's not working, and I think we've got a lot of guys playing Super Rugby that you know probably wouldn't be playing Super Rugby if they were in another country. You know. If yeah. they're in New Zealand or if they're in France or the UK or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Victorian rugby and for West Australian rugby. And, uh, you know, I want both those states to have the benefit of having a having a representative team in some manner. But, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that five teams is just too many, you know. Yeah. And it's killing us. It's killing us. Yeah. So it'd be, it'd be a completely different story to we'd be having a different chat if rugby was making. So I think we're in a false sense of security based on the fact we made $47 million profit on the back of the mm-hmm. 2003 Rugby World Cup when we hosted it. Do you think that made everyone think we're printing money here in Australia? This is going to be easy? I think so. I think so. I think we had so much success. Back then, and I think uh, I think O'Neill was a pretty good, uh, you know, chairman. Uh, he was a very, you know, savvy guy, financially savvy guy, obviously. Um, and I think that uh, people just assumed that we were going to continue to have that level of success, you know. And 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 what they didn't realise is that in you know Nick Farr Jones's world champion team and John Eels's world champion team, there those two teams were like once in a generation. Player groups, you know what I mean. It's uh, yeah. uh, unusual to get two such you know fabulous teams so close together historically. But um, yeah, it just uh, it, it's not working now. And, and like I like I say, I mean, you think about the players that are wearing green and gold today, and you compare them to those blokes back then, and there's no comparison. Yeah, there's just no comparison. You know. Um, and it's really, it really worries me, you know. And uh, um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, the players that we're seeing now, the elite players that we're seeing now in the Wallabies and the Super Rugby setups, um, we are we are beginning to see the first players born after that John Eels Championship team, that 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 era of greatness, if you like, which ended for us in about you know two thousand and three. So yep. we're seeing yep. folks that were born around that time, you know, they're coming up. And, uh, you know, I just wondered, like, in one generation, have we lost, yep. you know, that, that, that DNA, that now, that the rugby smarts that those guys had? Have we lost that in one generation? Yeah. Well, that, that, it feels like that's the case. I interviewed um, Gordon Bray, too, a couple of years ago, and I asked Gordon what he thought of all his all the great players, everything over history of rugby. And he told me an interesting story. So I looked at the history of Australian rugby from the very first test match in 1899 right through to now. We only really had a period of success in rugby from what I can work out from about 84, around around about Alan Jones taking over, till about 2003. So only about 20 years. The rest of the time, rugby in Australia haven't been lighting the world on fire. Had strong teams, had good teams, 
but not like we're dominating the world in the top couple of sides. It's never always been like that. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, I remember, I think it was the 1980 team that went uh, went to the UK. It might have been 81. You know, Paul McLean and Tony Shaw and Mark Lone and um, all those boys, and they lost every test match. You know, yeah. they, they didn't win a test match on tour. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's not like we've got this fabulous legacy of, of winning rugby like, uh, you know, like New Zealand does. We just don't. Um, yeah. You know, but we can be doing so much better than we're doing now. That's the frustrating thing, yeah. you know, um, I think. And, uh, oh Christ, you know, they need to move away. The administration needs to move away from this whole kind of like, and I don't want to trot out the cliches here, but the old boy network and the, you know, the old club tie and, uh, you know, McLennan is an old old boy of Shaw, so who does he put in as, you know, the guy to run things? Another old boy of Shaw, Phil War, you know? Yeah. So, um, that sort of thing. And I think we need some bloody regular people up there yeah. on the on the board, you know? Yeah. Some yeah, people that, that love the game that are going to come in and just, and you know, bust their ass for the good of the game. Yeah, 100% agree with that. So I, I look at, I always joke about it and tell everybody when I'm, when I'm commentating, I make a joke that driving in from Glenmore Park and coming to like Millionaires Road and I'm going to Warringah and that. And I also joke about, I went, I went to public schools, right? And I joke that my general free in year 12 was only 12 bucks at Windsor High School. So I have a $12 high school education and some of these guys are paying 30 grand a year to go to <laughs> Kings yeah. or, <laughs> pick pick your school doesn't particularly matter. Scots, all these different places, and um, I, I like that I can be associated with the game. But um, I can't remember the last guy that come through the public school system and made the Wallabies. Can't remember if who's done it. There have been guys that have done it, but gee, I can't remember off the top of my head from a local public school in New South Wales, Queensland, or anywhere. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't remember either. Um, I was talking about Stevie Merrick today. Remember Steve Merrick? He played about three tests. He was a coal miner from Singleton. Yeah, played halfback and uh, um, might have come in when Gregan was injured. I've talked about the mid nineties, I think early to mid nineties. But uh, yeah, he only played three or four test matches. But he was a brilliant halfback. He was a really, really good player. You yeah, know? but. Uh, I think he came from the public school system. And you remember Sitaleki Tamani, that enormous second rower for the Waratahs? Yeah. Didn't he uh, Didn't he come through the public school system? Oh, and Dem Sports, right, that's, not really a product, that's not really a public school. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's still a yeah, selective sport school, uh, sports school, but it's not a GPS school. So It's not a the, GPS school. No, no, no. Yeah. no. So the, some of the problem I've got, and I don't have a chip on my – it'll look like I've got a chip on my shoulder, I've, but I do have a problem – that you can go through the private school or GPS system, CCS, pick your IA, ICA system, whatever schools, doesn't particularly matter. How can you go from playing schoolboy football, divert a whole level, skip a whole level of playing against men and go from school rugby to playing for New South Wales Waratahs, but you don't have to play any shoot shield games or cut your teeth for that level? How how does that happen? I'm not sure. And some of these guys get fast track because they've, they've got super talent. But they're skipping levels of playing against men and then potentially playing for the Wallabies with only playing maybe 10 to 15 games against men, if that. Like, 
I don't think that happens in New Zealand, and I'm pretty sure it's not happening in Europe. No, I, I uh, yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with you there, uh, Maddie. Um, yeah, I mean we're in trouble. We're in trouble. The game's in trouble, you know, in this country. Yeah. So, being involved with Easts, um, big uh, unique challenges there. So it's a strong rugby area, the Eastern Suburbs. But there's not, a, I wouldn't imagine there's a massive population of people that still want to play rugby down there these days. It's not easy just to go, going to pull 50 kids off the street, right, and just walk along and grab 50 who want to play because housing in Sydney is unaffordable now, basically. Even where I live, Glenmore Park, it's nearly unaffordable to buy houses. So people are stopping playing rugby for the love of the game because they've got to afford to live too. Do you, do you think that's contributing to some of the problems we got getting yeah. keeping and retaining players. Oh, I think it probably is. I think there's I think there's less there's less young people playing the game, you yeah. know, these days. Obviously, you know, East are in a good situation in that we've got uh, a few schools in the area that uh, you know we, we get a lot of players uh, uh, from, particularly lately because the club's been doing well. Not so much shoot shield, but certainly lower grades and uh, uh, the clubhouse itself. You know, we're in. Uh, we're in a very good position. We've got Benny Batcher coming in as uh, as head coach uh, for next season and uh, uh, and twenty six. I think he signed a two year contract. I'm not one hundred percent sure, but I'm very excited about that. You yeah. know, but uh, I, I I think that they they've got to get more people playing. And I mean, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. Let's look at what the AFL's done. You know, I mean, I know the AFL is rolling in cash and all the rest of it, but uh, the way that they have, you know, got young students in traditional sort of rugby areas, traditional rugby schools, to take up Aussie rules is uh, is extraordinary, you know, and should be emulated. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. On, on our few rugby um, development officers, and I know a few AFL football development officers, and they've got a big area to cover, similar to the rugby guys, and they told me the AFL gives effectively is giving them a war chest. Go to the school, take footballs into the school, want to get these schools playing because might turn over AFL players and it's starting to get success. So they've taken an aggressive approach, taken on the, the NRL scared of AFL. Um, I think rugby's less scared because we're getting pumped and uh, we're getting handpicked at going to GPS schools and just picking, picking what they want. I want particular body types. Oh, six foot five. Don't play rugby, mate. Come and play AFL. You could make three, four, five hundred thousand a year and set you up, set yourself up for life. And you're probably not going to get too busted either doing it. So exactly. Plus, it's a fun game to play. They tell me, Aussie yeah. rules. But um, yeah, look, it's a, it's it's a worry. You know, I mean, they really have to address this issue of getting it back in the schools. You know, I mean, the day you know, I mean, Randwick Boys High used to play rugby, you know, Matraville High School, you yeah. know, that's where the Ellers went, wasn't it? You yeah. know, I was at Randwick, I'm not sure, you know, but uh, yeah. there, there was public schools that had, uh, you know, rugby union traditions and they need to try and get that happening again. I mean, obviously the big problem is money. Um, yeah. But I don't know, you know, we've got some pretty cre creative financial heads involved yeah. with the game. Surely to God they can get together you know, make something happen. 
Yeah, that, that's why I think it's weird. We've got all these brilliant commercial people with uh, business acumen up to their eyeballs and can turn over like considerable profit margins for big international companies and that. What happens when they get involved with rugby clubs? So where, where's the breakdown? There's a breakdown there somewhere. Well, exactly. So, exactly. And it's sort of, I think it, it, it maybe connects back to my earlier remark that they're not really serious about, you know, their job promoting rugby union football. You know what I yeah. mean? They don't They don't want to do much work. They just want to brag to their mates that they're, I don't bloody know, you know. Yeah. But, um, I mean, that's how it seems like to me because you're right, you know. They should be, you know, addressing this money issue and uh, uh, addressing all the other issues and bloody working together and, uh, you know. Yeah. I just don't see it. I, I, I see it's too fractured. It's too splintered, the Australian rugby landscape. Yeah. And everybody's worried about their own job and their own piece of pie and they're not really willing to stretch out and help anybody else do, you know. Yeah, that, that's what I think's happening. I think that everyone's so worried that they're going to lose what they've got, but they're scared to consolidate resources for the better of the game. So, And if you look at one thing we've got, there's a huge Polynesian population now. And these guys are looking for... So the Polynesian guys I know in the West, they're looking for jobs. So they, they'll play people who've got a bit of money. They're looking for like career opportunities too. So people help them out and you get them a job. Well, not just a bum job as a labourer or something like help these guys get some sort of career pathway, whatever that is, including trades. We might get some like designated return. So they'll give you a return on your investment. They'll be dedicated to your club and help things out. So then it doesn't have to be all about just money because you're helping this guy help his family. They're big on the family units, why aren't we? But it's all big picture stuff. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent, mate. Hundred percent. It's good to see, you know, a number of clubs now have sort of partnered up with tertiary institutions, you know, TAFE yeah, or, yeah. or universities or or whatever, and uh, you know, trying to get these guys into like a you know career path that they're happy with, and uh, you know, help them like that, rather than trying to try to scrounge around so they can get paid two hundred fifty bucks a game or three hundred bucks a game or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean. Uh, Look, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know how to fix the problem, but all yeah. I know is that really radical decisions need to be made and tough decisions, you know, tough options, tough choices yeah. need to be made. Otherwise, otherwise the game's going to die out in this country, you know. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I'll be around to see it, but I, I think in the next 100 years, you know, it'll, it'll just die out. Yeah, I think it's got to that level, unfortunately. Um, we'll go on to some good things here. So your career commentating, how did you get in the commentating and it's, how did it eventuate? And what are some of your highlights you have when you're commentating? Well, I, I've always, I've always enjoyed being behind the the microphone. You know, when I was, when I was living in America and going to university over there, I had a radio show that I did on the campus radio station, yeah. which was called, which was called looking over down under. Um, yeah. Every Monday night, and uh, I, we got quite the uh, quite the following, you know. But we only played Aussie music and uh, good Aussie music. There was no air supply or Olivia Newton John, <laughs> anything like that. So I've always enjoyed, you know, being behind the microphone. And I was, uh, you know, ground announcing at, at, at East, 
you know, yeah. a little bit, but uh, enough for John Murray to have heard me behind the mic. And then uh, at the beginning, it was at the it was pre-season 2012, I think, and I was over watching this uh, play on a pre-season match on Colleagues Fields, and I overheard this guy behind me having a conversation, and somebody said to him, oh, "Have you found have you found your commentators yet?" And he and this guy said, "Well, no, no, we, we're still looking." And I turned around and I said, "Look, any commentary work?" I said, "I'm really, really interested." And uh, that was John Murray, you know. And he said, "Oh, yeah." He said, "I've heard you, you ground announcing." He said, "You'd be good," and that's what you know kicked it off. And I think it, it, we originally had about four or five blokes, um, you know, come and uh, try and get the job for for uh, Club Rugby TV, which was. John Murray's and Nick Fordham's company that, you know, bought the rights uh, to shoot Shield. But I was the only one that sort of stuck it out, you know. And uh, um, Gordy Bray is the best friend of a, of a great friend of mine, Peter Shipway. And uh, so through Shippo, I was able to meet uh, Gordon and talk to him about his career and talk about uh, commentary and show him some of my games and get some insight from him and some gentle sort of criticism. And then next thing I know, they've bought the rights, you know, when the ABC stopped doing it and when Tony Abbott cut their funding and, uh, you know, they were spending a lot of money on their outside broadcast, the ABC. Um, I think we managed to do it for less than half of what they were uh, uh, doing it for. But, uh, and all of a sudden I'm calling the games on Channel 7, you know, and I'll never forget <laughs> I'll never forget the first game that we did because, you know, Murray said, okay, here's the crew. We've got big Andrew Swain and then Cam Shepard's going to be, you know, your your colour commentator. He'll be next to you. And then uh, uh, um, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Will Davies uh, yeah. came on board with us and was on, the, was on the sideline and stuff. But the very first game that we did, which was East versus Gordon, so and it was at Wallara Oval, was an absolute shambles, mate. I just can't tell you how bad it was, how bad we were. You know, I mean, yeah. mistakes, mistakes all over the place. You know, I'm misidentifying players. Um, you know, had no idea. I'm swearing on air. I had no idea. <laughs> it was an absolute shambles, but we got through it. You know, and there was no like, yeah. there was no complaints from the poo bars at Channel Seven. You know, and. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, once we got through that, we just started to slowly sort of get it together. And then, you know, I think we, we, we by sort of year two and year three, we were doing a pretty good job with it. I mean, I loved it, man. I loved it, you know. I really loved doing it. And, uh, and I was so upset when they sold the rights. I'm like, no, you shouldn't have done that. Anyway, but they needed to go back to uh, uh, Rugby Australia. But it's, uh, it was a lot of fun, man. It was a lot of fun, you know. And I look forward to doing it again if we can, uh, if I can organise a gig. Yeah, so uh, that, that's what I'm looking uh, forward to as well. I'm trying to reach out to Rugby Australia myself, chasing to get back to. I enjoyed doing shoot shield games, but I stuck with subbies. Took took the safe option, and I love it. I love it. I just love commentary. It's exciting to be involved in something that you're doing. So that, that's I, love, I love it too. Bit. I mean, I, I called some lower grade games for clutch. You know, I mean, I, I was calling second grade Colts. Um, at one stage, and I enjoyed that as much as calling, you know, shoot shield, you know, uni versus whoever, you know what I mean, or east versus whoever, but just calling the Colts and uh, the second graders and the third graders had a lot of fun. But clutch is uh, 
gone into administration. Did you see that? Yeah, just just seeing. I was just going to say that to you. Um, on Monday, went into administration, so all the balls are up in the air with what I was planning on doing next year. Um, may need to be revisited in that. So uh, I'm not sure Duckman TV is the big media empire I want it to be to be able to <laughs> lay something down. Tell me about the nickname. How did you get the nickname? When I was playing rugby out at Hawkesbury Vout, so when I was at school, my nickname forever, I'm six foot five, my nickname was Lurch. Lurch. So at school for years and years. And uh, when I started playing rugby in at Hawkesbury Valley after playing Colts at Penrith, went out Hawkesbury Valley when I was 19 in uh, back in 1997. And I was kicking around playing fourth grade and third grade. So I should have been playing higher, but not training very serious. And uh, we're playing against. It was Barker or Seabobs playing against one of them and they're busting us up a little bit and the coach at half time but I've become really good friends with is going oh yeah gonna do this and that get bust this guy follow the duck man the duck man will run around and smash him just went oh yeah sweet they give me a nickname if, if you give yourself a nickname you're a bit of a wanker right so they gave me a nickname <laughs> duck man I asked him after the game how come you gave me a nickname duck man he goes you run like a duck with a pole up your ass. Like, Alrighty, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. So I run very straight-legged and that, and very upright. So I, I like it. I didn't make it, and it's just stuck with me for the last twenty-six years. So, um, yeah, res, res, a lot of people know me through rugby now from that. So it's a lot of fun. I like being involved in rugby. It's very social, and. Um, despite that there's a lot of heat on the field, right? Everyone's trying to do their best. But afterwards, you can walk off. And I think it's only a handful of times in 30-something years I've been involved in rugby where I walked off the field not being able to have a drink with someone after the game because yeah. of bad blood or whatever. Like 99 times out of 100, just leave it on the field. It is what it is. You just deal with it. A couple of times I've had things happen where, nah, mate, it's a bit of a problem. So you you try to apologise or... They'll try to apologise, and yeah, just you can't you can't do it. Other than that, yeah, it's great. It's a great game to be involved in, and um, it's sad to see rugby where it's at now. Terribly sad. I mean, it's it, it's shocking. You know, I mean, I must say that I bought into the the Eddie hype a little bit, you know, and the Eddie hope a little bit, thinking, oh yeah, well, we'll probably we'll probably you know we'll we'll make the semis, but. Gee, they've been brutally exposed, this World Cup, our current Wallabies uh, side. They've been brutally exposed, you know. Um, it's a shame. So I went to Briar Sports Lunch earlier in the year and um, met Eddie Jones and had a chat to him, and he was good. He answered my questions. I asked him, and I said, are there too many sides in Super Rugby? Is that so diluting the talent too much? He goes, they're good questions. Um Goes, you would think there is, wouldn't you? So it goes because there's we've got a lot of people at that level, but they should be if they're playing super rugby level, they should be in qualification to play for the Wallabies, and that's not it's not the case at the moment, right? We've got let's say two hundred people playing super rugby level, including your reserves and the biggest squads, that there wouldn't be two hundred people who are Wallabies players playing that level. They'd be no. like if there's thirty five or forty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I mean, there's no doubt he's a good coach. You know, he's got the he's got the runs yeah. on the board and all the rest of yeah. it. But just, I mean, what I heard from sort of inside the camp last time he had the reins, 
here was was a was a bit disturbing, and I don't think he's changed his ways, you know. And uh, yeah. he's such a control freak and such a micromanager that uh, you know sooner or later people just get totally sick of people like that. Yeah. You know? if, so, if, when I saw him, when I was chatting to him, he just looked he looked tired, and that was a couple of months ago. He looked tired, like oh, the England job's taken it out of me. I'm feeling right. He won't say it. But he, so he just looks physically and mentally drained, like he needs a break. And he's rolled out of one job straight into another. Well, I don't know. That was the smartest thing to do ever. So I well, would have wanted to have a bit of a break because I've done it even in my professional career, changed from one job to another without having a break. And then you end up going like a year to two years without a break before you have a break. Like that's that's not good So because you're not performing at your best. So is he even performing at his best at the moment? I'm not, I'm not sure. That's a good. It's it's a good question, mate. He's he's a very very intense bloke, you know, and maybe he, you know, fired himself up thinking about like I'm the guy that can turn Australian rugby around, and that's what he keeps saying now. You know, it's uh, uh, you know, this is a, this is all part of the journey, and uh, you know, short term pain for long term gain, yeah, uh, and stuff like that. And I don't disagree with that. You know, like yeah. I said before, I don't disagree with that. And I think to a certain degree that's that's what needs to happen. I just don't think he's the man to do it though, you know. Yeah. I I mean if we had a if we had a I keep waiting for the next Rod McQueen. Yeah. Where is the next Rod McQueen? You know? I mean, he was such an innovator and such a good coach, you know, and uh um the defensive strategies that he instilled at the Wallabies, had all the rest of the world rethinking their attack strategies to try and unpick the yeah. Wallaby defence, you know? Yeah. So it was uh, uh, a real kind of step forward for, for worldwide rugby that was, you know, bought by Rod McQueen and, and Australia's Wallabies. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you know, once the attack works out to, how to unlock the defence, then the defence needs to get stronger and so on and so forth. Yeah. See, I, I genuinely thought, before Brad Fawn got sacked, I thought he was looking like he would be a good option to be Wallaby's coach as well. And then he got dismissed and he's having a break from all duties he's doing, professional coaching, and probably needs it too. Um, DC, same, DC would be a developing coach on the way up you'd be looking at as probably a five-year thing. I'm not sure if you'd do it any sooner. So I think he likes the gig that he's got right now, but he'll need to get some results with the Waratahs, or they might flick him as well because it's just the world's become impatient. We expect instant results, but are our sides as good as perhaps what our expectation of our sides is? No, they're not. That's the that's the short answer. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're not... Uh... They're not very good, and uh, you know, just look at our record against the Kiwis. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a different level, mate. It's a different level, you know. Um, I mean, one of the huge things for Australian rugby was when Queensland went to Otago, I think, no, Waikato, yeah. and beat the and beat the Chiefs. Um, yeah. You know, for for the first uh, for the first time uh, that that season. I mean, that that was huge. You know, yeah. But I was thinking to myself, well, what did they do exactly? They didn't didn't really do anything except they they got they did the little things right, you know. 
They, yeah. they really did, and they shut down this uh, very, very good Waikato side. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't really have the answers, mate. Yeah. You know, I just think they've got to make some, you know, big changes and do it quickly. Yeah. So let's have a look at the Rugby World Cup to start winding this up. Um, I'm going to make a big call here. South Africa got themselves in the sport of bother when they lost to Ireland. Scotland are punching above their weight. Scotland haven't played South Africa yet. Can Scotland beat South Africa? I think Scotland's got the potential to beat South Africa. Do you reckon they could do it, cause an upset and knock them out? I think they could, yeah. I think they could. I mean, I, I the, the the Springboks are... They go, they're going pretty well, but they're, they're pretty one-dimensional too, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if uh, Nehemiah is going to keep with this strategy of putting seven forwards on the bench because that really came back to hurt them against Ireland. Yeah. You know, they had no backup, uh, uh, um, almost said quarterback, halfback. Yeah. And then when, when yeah. Fafta Clerk got injured, you know, they were uh, uh, in trouble there. So... You know, we'll we'll see. Uh, you know, Gregor Townsend's a very good coach. He's a very cage. He was a very good player, yeah. uh, very very smart player, and he's a very smart coach as well. And I think if anybody can engineer that sort of upset, Gregor Townsend can do it. it, it it's another thing too. Jack Dempsey is now their starting eight. Yeah, isn't he? You know, and I mean, over here he wasn't even a definite starter for the for the Waratahs, was he? I mean, well, he, no, he I don't wasn't. think he was. Yeah. So- it's, a, it's it's funny how guys have left Australia that weren't doing too much. Um, Devine was another one that went over to play in New Zealand in MPC, ended up playing for the All Blacks, but couldn't even get a look in in Super Rugby over here. That's exactly right. And there was that prop that had a couple of years, uh, Angus Tartavau had a couple of years with uh, New South Wales Waratahs, and he wasn't yeah. that crash shot. Then he goes back home to New Zealand. Next thing, he's wearing all black. You know, <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's our, you know, our really our sort of overall coaching strategy that's the problem, I think, you know, and that and that, uh, the lack of people really working together in a serious way, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that needs to be addressed yeah. and fixed. So who, who do we think will win? Who do you think will actually win the World Cup at the moment? Like, I think Ireland. Oh, Oh, really? Yeah, Ireland's looking hard to beat, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, from what I, I haven't seen Ireland play yet, didn't see the game against South Africa. I have seen France play a couple of games, and I like what they're doing. They're just grinding teams into the ground, kicking, kicking, kicking when it's there, um, playing a bit like South Africa, but more a Northern Hemisphere style. So, they, they don't care if they've got to play ugly and have 65 phases to get a try or... Wait till oh. they get a penalty. They'll just they'll work it like that. That's all right. Yep. So. Uh, not sure how they're going to go with uh, if Dupont is going to play with that broken jaw. There was talk about him playing, getting a special kind of a protective sort of a a mask. But I don't know. It's a hell of a risk, isn't it? Play with a broken jaw, and he's so he's so iconic for them, so talismanic for them, so important for them. Um, you know, really is the linchpin of their team. He's the number one rugby player in the world generally accepted uh, yeah. today. But, um, you know, they could struggle. They could struggle if that broken jaw sort of kicks him out, you know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the problem. So they've got, they've got big blocks similar to South Africa. If I think if you took out their big blocks so they weren't running hard through the middle, just building phase after phase after phase, 
you could break that down and give them more penalties or something to break their game up, I actually think you might take out some of their strike weapons by just bringing in just free just a lot of free kicks, just dumb stuff like laying the ruck, just slow the ball down, deliberately play offside and just just encroach all that stuff. Make them have to keep playing different all the time. If you break the structured play, I think it might pay some dividends. So well, yeah, so that's a, you know, make it ugly. I mean, that's a that's a that's a winning strategy. A lot of yeah. times, you know, just make it as ugly as you can, slow it down, frustrate them, you know, put yeah. them off their rhythm, you know, get up in their faces, um, upset them a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. But I, you know, I, I think out of all the teams at the tournament that I've seen so far, Ireland is looking the best. Yeah. And I think Wales. I think Wales are in the right side of the draw now to get to the semis, yes. at least. Yes. And um, they actually Warren Gatlin back. They they look pretty good. So they do. They do. Um, it'll be interesting to see how how much deeper they'll go with their with the run. So it depends who drops in their side of the draw when it gets to semi final level. I imagine because they they really probably look. The best out of the Six Nation sides, other than Ireland, at the moment. Yeah, I think so. I think so. England's got a bit of a question mark over them. It's hard to tell how they're going to do. I mean, they were so sort of terrible leading up to the World Cup, but they've looked a bit better once the tournament started. Yeah, um, and I, I don't think they've lost yet, have they? No, the not yet. No. So. Um, yeah, it, I, I really would like Ireland to win it, win the whole thing. I don't want to see South Africa win a bloody f- yeah. fourth, yeah. fifth one, or whatever it is. Yeah. You know? yeah, what would it, what would it be if South Africa won? Would that be their fifth or their fourth? I think it's their fourth. Be their fourth, yeah. Okay, yeah. but we'll hear about it for the next four World Cups. And look, I, I'm looking forward to Australia and Portugal. You know, yeah. I mean that that Portuguese back line is quite slick. You yeah. know. And yeah. uh, pretty quick, so. Well, I actually think now the pressure's off Australia. We might see them play pretty good football. So, because it doesn't, what well, if they lose, they lose. If they win, if they lose, it's just another knife and dagger into Eddie Jones and Hamish McLennan. Absolutely, um, yeah. So they've got no reason not to try to throw it around, right? So, could always hope that Fiji lose to Georgia or something like. Not likely, but. Um, they got to hope for the best. Try to try to put some points on, and yeah. if they're building for the future, we'll build for the future. Look, just throw yeah. throw it around. See what you got. There's no reason not to now. Yeah. Well, they finally got a specialist. Uh, well, not a specialist, but a regular centre pairing in uh, Fakedi and Isaiah uh, Izzy Parisi um, yeah. at twelve and thirteen. So that might work a little bit better, I think. But um, you know, Tom Hooper and Fraser McWright. I mean, they're great guys, and uh, um, but are they really the Wallabies starting breakaways? You know. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have thought so. So, but the, uh, we'll see. Like every the funny thing is, the Australian public were giving it to the Wallabies at the moment. In three years, we'll all be going. Oh, mate, Carter Gordon's the best number ten we've got. Yeah, <laughs> Tom Hooper. Oh, he's, he's a brilliant six. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I always I wear his hat, wear his shirt. I'm I'm all over it. So, hundred percent. 
Well, I was. I'm, I still am a big Carter Gordon fan, but I'm worried that Eddie's going to destroy his game for for life. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Because he had such a good Super Rugby season, I thought this kid's the real deal. You know, he's uh, he's quick, he's got a foot, he's got a, a good brain, he's a tough defender. You know, it reminded me a bit of Larkin. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So I hope he's, I hope he comes out of this tournament okay. You know, I hope yeah. these young blokes come out of okay. So even Tate McDermott, he like. I don't like he does fifty billion box kicks, but we're taking the box kicks out of his game now, making him play different to how he's played the rest of his career. So, and we're expecting he's going to play better. But we changed his style all of a sudden a couple of months out from the World Cup from the way that he's played for ten years. Why do we think we're going to get a better outcome out of doing that? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. He's not exactly the king of box kicks though. That's Nick White, yeah. isn't he? The bloody box kick is a blight on the game and they should outlaw it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I said they should just leave it up the props, get props pull off out the back and just whack him. So Yeah, yeah, my word. My word. It just it drives me mental, mate, you know? Yeah. It drives me mental. And so, and seeing Nick White. We're on we're on attack. We're a third or fourth phase into the into the twenty two come the wallabies. What does he do? He dinks a ball over the top and uh kicks a dead end goal. It's yeah. ridiculous, you know. I saw him do one when we're just outside the twenty-two a little while ago, a couple of months ago. And I'm thinking we're attacking the twenty-two, and your box kick like it's a defensive box kick. Why? Just keep no. right, we've got ball in hand in attacking position midfield. You can strike right or left, and your box kick like you put up a box kick into the corner like you're trying to do a crossfield kick or something like that. It's I don't know. Are we trying to watch the NRL and do what they do because that looks good or something? It's ridiculous, mate. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you, can you imagine George Gregan doing that? No, you can't. <laughs> you know, or Nick Clark Jones. No, you can't. Even bloody, you know, P- Peter Flattery or some of the lesser known halfbacks wouldn't do, yeah. wouldn't do. And he just keeps doing it, you know? Yeah. Even Whitaker, none, none of those guys did any of that sort of stuff. No, no, no. No, the box kick. It's a blight on the game. No, 100%. So we'll just we'll bounce quickly. I just want to ask you one more question here. So to shoot shield this season, it's the closest it's been in years. Yep. We're happy that it was as close as it was, and I think it's good for the competition that it was. So it's a lot tighter, and Sydney Uni not making it, not plus neither here nor there, except that's gifted someone else an opportunity to play finals football. That's good for the overall competition, isn't it? Oh, my word. My word, it is. It's always good for any competition to, you know, have have sort of you know new blood, uh, uh, you know, winning championships and uh, um, you know featuring in finals play uh, and so on and so forth. So I, you know, the Shield Shield is a very healthy competition, in yeah. my opinion. You know, the standard of rugby is uh, is very high. You know, it's I think it's well supported, and I just think that. Uh, you know, unfortunately, rugby is so on the nose in this country at the moment that, uh, you know, club rugby, you know, cops it as well, you know. Yeah. But uh, um, I've always thought the shoot shield is, uh, you know, a strong competition, uh, you know, full of good players. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely enjoy it. And like I said a bit earlier, it's disappointing that it's not a professional competition. It's a very good amateur competition, but... Um, It'd be good to see 
enough money to make it professional. I think we've got people that if they had the ability to play in a professional environment and do it full time, I think our rugby really would thrive in the country. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Agree with that, Matty. Yeah. Tony, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it tonight. So I know it's Friday night. Um, you guys are exciting a life as me by the look of it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's just me and the dog. <laughs> Not a lot going on, so... Um, Appreciate your time and having a chat and look forward to having a chat with you again in the future. Outstanding. It's been great, Matty. Loved it. Good on you, mate. Absolutely. There you go, everyone. You'll be able to catch this on Duckman TV a bit later on. We'll upload it on Duckman TV on YouTube and also on Facebook. And I'll turn this into a podcast beyond Weekend Warriors within the next week or so. Tony, thanks very much for your time. Keep on ducking, everyone, and I'll catch you all again soon.